Welcome back to the program. We all remember Ben Franklin flying his kite or Alexander Graham Bell calling for Watson, even Jonas Salk working diligently in his laboratory. Today, science, or at least big science, is a global effort involving governments, private enterprise, universities, and vast institutional support. Think about the International Space Station, the Large Hadron Collider, and even before all of that, the Manhattan Project, NASA, and the development of the Internet itself. All are part of what my guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Hiltzak, calls big science. Michael Hiltzak is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's an author who's covered business, technology, and public policy for the Los Angeles Times for 20 years. He's the author of numerous previous books, and it is my pleasure to welcome Michael Hiltzak back to this program to talk about his latest, Big Science, Ernest Lawrence and the Invention that Launched the Military-Industrial Complex. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. If we look at this totality of big science, all of the things that you talk about in the book, is this something that is continuing to evolve today, or was this all about a particular moment in time that kind of begins where you begin this story with Ernest Lawrence and maybe is coming to some kind of an end and, and being privatized like so much else today? Well, I, I think there are both aspects to big science today. Uh, for one thing, as science gets bigger and much more expensive, obviously the money we spend on it from government, from industry, from foundations, it, it, that effort comes into conflict with all the other things that, that we in society want to spend money on, uh, relieving hunger and poverty, uh, addressing disease, getting... Um, uh, getting medicines and drugs to uh, to a broader population, uh, and and so on. Uh, on the other hand, the the problems that we're asking science to address are also getting bigger, and it's not going to get cheaper to address them. And that includes problems like climate change. Uh, addressing climate change is a quintessential big science project. We do it uh, both by research that we conduct on the surface of the Earth. Uh, and as deep as the oceans, but also from satellites in geosynchronous orbit in, in, in outer space around the Earth. So it can't be done cheaply, and it can't be done by half measures. So we really, as a society, I think we're going to have to figure out how to balance all the needs we have with the need we have to to use big science to solve our problems. Why do you think that, that as a nation we seem to have lost our, our taste for, or at least our enthusiasm for, these big science projects? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we've lost our enthusiasm for for research and discovery, uh, but I think we've, over the last 20, 30 40 years, we've been told that that we're not as rich as we see are, that there are limits to what we spend. Uh, I think a lot of that is sort of uh, uh, exaggerated and, and misapplied. But certainly, um, you know, people who've come into Congress since the 1980s keep talking about small government and that government can't solve problems and we shouldn't spend money. Um, uh, and I think that has a lot to do with this sense we have that our resources are, are limited, and in fact, more limited than they really are. And let's go back to the beginning of this. Talk a little bit about who Ernest Lawrence was. Sure. Well, uh, Lawrence isn't very well known today, although uh, anyone who has heard uh, the name Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory should know he's the Lawrence of Lawrence Livermore. I think a lot of people... <laughs> 
made me think that the lab is named after a guy named Lawrence Livermore, but it's not. It's it's a laboratory that, that Ernest Lawrence founded in Livermore, California. He founded it, in fact, as a specialized lab for government research into the hydrogen bomb, which he was a great advocate of. Uh, but he started his career, he, he was a, a small-town boy from Canton, South Dakota. He was educated uh, at Midwestern State Universities. He was clearly a genius. Uh, he was a genius at physics and a genius at engineering, and he put these skills together to invent the cyclotron, which was the most effective, most powerful particle accelerator of its day when he invented it in 1929, and we still see its offspring today. The, the Large Hadron Collider, which you mentioned, uh, the, the huge, great accelerator that was um, uh, built by a consortium of European countries on the Swiss-French border, that's, in essence, a cyclotron. Uh, specifically, it's got four or five cyclotrons built into it, but it's it's the latest iteration of the machine that Ernest Lawrence built for about $100 that fit in the palm of his hand in 1930, uh, and that's grown into this uh, behemoth that, that's uh, thousands of times more powerful that occupies a 17-mile tunnel under the Swiss-French landscape and costs $9 billion to build. The cyclotron was also necessary for and a kind of precursor to the atomic age. Well, yes, the cyclotron became a very, very critical instrument in developing the atomic bomb um, uh, in in several ways. Uh, first of all, um, it, it was a converted cyclotron. It was a cyclotron that Lawrence converted himself that was the first uh, technology to uh, enrich uranium to the point that it could be used in a bomb. And, and he did this by converting the cyclotron and then installing the converted instruments at a new industrial plant that he designed in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And that's how we got Oak Ridge. Uh, it was also a, a fact that at, at Lawrence's lab at Berkeley, the cyclotron was used to find new elements, uh, elements heavier than uranium, including element 94, which is plutonium. Uh, plutonium was the core of the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. So here's Lawrence. His technology created all the uranium that went into the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima a, a month from now, 70 years ago. And then plutonium discovered in his lab was all of the material that went into the bomb that destroyed Nagasaki. So uh, you can't really separate big science from the atomic age or the Manhattan Project because the Manhattan Project, in its way, was the validation of the paradigm. You couldn't invent atomic weapons, just uh, lone scientists working in their own little labs with handmade equipment could not have developed that technology. It took teams, it took billions of dollars, and it took big machines. The other aspect to Lawrence was not only was he a genius as a physicist, he was a great promoter, and he understood the importance of all of his friendships with the military, with generals, and as a way to use that to create the funding mechanism for these projects. That's right. Lawrence was a very nimble manager, and he was not only a nimble manager of his own staff, he was a manager up. Uh, he uh, he had a skill to, to figure out what the, the potential patrons of his work really wanted to see, and he would 
uh, he would adjust his his program to meet their needs so that he could keep this funding going. And, and this is a very important phenomenon. It's a very important paradigm, and it's one that we see every day um, when you are collecting huge amounts of money, millions of dollars, billions of dollars from these varied uh, funding sources, uh, academia, foundations, government, and industry, you really have to have a skill at satisfying all of their needs and all of their goals simultaneously without really compromising the work you're doing, but, but, but finding ways to, to adjust it and accommodate it. He was a master at that, and I think he showed the way for a lot of his successors and how to do it. How did Berkeley become the center of Lawrence's work? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting story. Um, in the late 1920s, the University of California and its only campus at that time was Berkeley. It had sort of a rump campus at, in Los Angeles that some years later became UCLA. It had a lot of money because Californian uh, entrepreneurs wanted to see a great university and the state was funding it as well. Uh, and it had terrific facilities that had been built with these resources, but it didn't have the faculty and the personnel, particularly in physics. Um, the University of California tried to recruit some famous uh, older scientists, including Niels Bohr, to become uh, deans of physics, uh, but they were all established. They had their own sinecures at other universities or other countries. So, so the, the, the trustees took a different tack. They went looking for young scientists who were embarking on what looked to be potentially brilliant careers, and they brought them in. And when in 1928, 1929, when you were looking at the list of candidates like that, Ernest Lawrence, who had already made his name as a, as a great experimentalist, he was at the top of the list. So they persuaded him to leave a position at Yale, a junior position that would take him 10 years or more to, uh, uh, to move up through the ranks there. Uh, and they said, look, at Berkeley, you're going to have a clear field. You're going to be our star. Uh, uh, you're going to get everything you want. Look at our facilities. They persuaded him to come. And he and his new colleague, Robert Oppenheimer, the greatest theorist, in America at the time. Together they turned Berkeley from a physics backwater into the leading institution, the leading global institution that it is today. And what they also did is set the stage for universities, large universities, to be involved in this in this complex between government and big science, as you talk about. Yes, that's right. Lawrence, because he was such a star at Berkeley, had the ability to get the maximum amount of funding from the university system that he could to build his ever bigger, more powerful, and more expensive cyclotrons. But he understood that the point was being reached, and this was in the mid-30s already, that his demands, the needs of his of his program, outstripped the real capacities of the university to provide them. Uh, so he went for, he knew he would have to find other sources of funding, and he went to the obvious places. He got funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, from uh, the, chemi the Chemical Foundation, uh, from other foundations that were involved uh, that wanted to fund uh, important science. And then when the government started getting interested in, in physics research, he, he, he knew how to get funding from government officials. And then, of course, industry was going to be a great beneficiary of his work, and he made sure that they participated in the funding of it. And one of the things you talk about is that 
once this all started to get so big, so interconnected, so complex, that there had to be projects to fill the situations, the institutions that had been created. That's right. Well, it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, as you make more discoveries with this uh, this huge area of equipment, you open up new vistas, and that requires even more equipment. It requires more spending, and and it it requires more compromises among uh, universities and and other academic institutions and their funding sources, including government. And talk a little bit about the pushback to this. There were critics of this at the time. Yes, well, there were always critics because of the demand resources. And certainly by the end of Lawrence's life and then the few years, starting a few years after his death in 1958, these conflicts became even more obvious. Uh, 1961, Alvin Weinberg, who was a colleague of Lawrence's and was at that point heading up Oak Ridge, which was after all Lawrence's uh, industrial lab, uh, he coined the term big science and raised questions about what impact it was going to have on society and science and academia. And, and he pointed out that there were multiple downsides to, to this fixation on monumental science projects. He pointed specifically at high energy physics uh, and a few other things and said, you know, do we want to be the society that's known for curing disease or the society that's known for putting a human being on Mars? Uh, he didn't necessarily answer that question, but by raising the question, uh, he, he sort of implied the answer. How important was the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project to, to creating all that we've been talking about? Because one of the things you talk about in the book is the degree to which Lawrence was so involved in, in really the whole Manhattan Project and in fact saved it from uh, extinction, almost extinction at one point. That's right. Uh, Lawrence saved it from extinction. There was a point in, in 1941 when uh, the government's overseers of scientific research for, the, for what was then the coming war, they were very doubtful that the atomic bomb could be built, could be developed in time to affect the war. And of course, if you're trying to win a war, you can't really waste resources on something that's not going to matter. Uh, but it was Lawrence himself who personally... Uh, in a face-to-face meeting with uh, with these overseers, said, "Look, it's feasible. It can be designed and built in time to affect the war, and it's necessary because we have a reasonable concern that Nazi Germany is working on the same thing." Uh, now, um, I, I think that's a defensible position because we were at war at the time, and there wasn't much question among physicists at the time that this was something that really needed to be done. Uh, now, by the same token, the Manhattan Project validated the paradigm of big science because it did require so much in terms of manpower and resources and intellectual resources and money. And it showed that when you put all of those uh, forces together in, in, in quest of a shared goal, you really could accomplish something that at the beginning of the quest, nobody was sure could, it, could even be done. Uh, and I think that's the story of big science, that, that it, it does require a shared goal, but, and it does require enormous resources. But when you do all that and you have all those conditions, it really does work spectacularly well. And what was the nexus between all of this and the continued emergence of the big defense contractors, the general dynamics at the time, the Boeings, Douglas, Grumman, etc.? 
Well, during the war, uh, there, there were points in the Manhattan Project and in other projects, including the development of radar, where where industry was brought in to, to, to help. Uh, Oak Ridge was built by a subsidiary of Eastman Kodak Corporation. Uh, um, Chevron uh, had a subsidiary that built other industrial um, uh, facilities that were necessary once you had the theory and the practice of say atomic weapons uh, develop, then you actually needed industrial scale factories to build the gadgets uh, and and to finish the job. So that started during the war, and then after the war, the government remained a major patron of big science, and the government, the U.S. government, was very interested in public-private partnerships. So there was always an industrial partner to all of these big science. Uh, project. So it started in the war. It really started with Lawrence's program, and it continued after the war, and, and of course has become bigger and, and, and has really evolved into something that uh, we're not entirely sure is the right thing all the time. And what do you think Lawrence would see today? What would this look like to him today? What would he feel that went awry from his original ideas? Well, there are signs that he would be of two minds about it. Uh, first of all, I think he would be enthralled and gratified at how much uh, how much has been accomplished by, by the offspring of his cyclotron in high energy physics, and the accomplishments have just been just been huge. I mean, we've learned so much about the natural world and and the subatomic world from cyclotrons and their uh, and their descendants. Uh, it, it's just uh, amazing how much human ingenuity can do. There's some question about how he would have felt about the continued proliferation, uh, nuclear proliferation in the world and the threat we live under from uh, from nuclear uh, weapons technology gone awry. Uh, in fact, in the 1980s, many years after uh, her husband's death, Lawrence's widow, Molly, started a campaign. She was so concerned about proliferation and about the Livermore Lab's participation in this sort of nuclear research, she became convinced that her her late husband would would not have been happy with it. She started a campaign, first at the University of California and then uh, in Congress, to have his name taken off his own lab uh, at Livermore. Uh, and of course, obviously, we know from the results that she failed at that. And to this day, that lab is known as Lawrence Livermore National Lab uh, in honor of the man who founded it. Um, but uh, but she was unhappy with it. Uh, you know, she was convinced that he would have been unhappy with it. We can't really be sure because at least as long as he was alive, he thought he was doing the right thing, and he thought that research on thermonuclear weapons really was uh, um, uh, an element of national security, and it had to be continued. And, of course, during the 60s especially, there were many pushbacks at the University of California in general, UC Berkeley specifically, against their involvement with Lawrence Livermore and, and, and similar projects. Right, and I think those concerns continue because Livermore is still, I think, about half of its work is devoted to uh, to secret science. Uh, n- nobody really knows, at least outside uh, the government and the lab, uh, what they're working on. Um, and look, relationship between the University of California and the bomb program, uh, you know, its management of Los Alamos, its management of Lawrence Livermore, uh, it, this, this is a relationship that was established by Ernest Lawrence. And, it, and you're right, it has become a flashpoint 
um, certainly in recent decades, but, but almost ever since. And when Eisenhower warned of the military-industrial complex, to what extent do you think this the whole area that we've been talking about was part of his concern? Well, I think what Eisenhower saw was, was the evolution of this relationship between government and industry that started during the war into one in which government, uh, industry rather, was beginning to drive the relationship and that government policy was being, if not dictated, then certainly heavily influenced by the interests of industry. Uh, industry wanted the grants and wanted the contracts uh, to continue this sort of work and, uh, and industry started to play a political role in uh, in 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 uh, government policy, and that was something that made Eisenhower very, very uncomfortable. And I think, uh, I certainly think, succeeding decades have shown that Eisenhower was wise to have uh, to have raised the alarm. And it's interesting to come back, kind of, to where we are today, where we started this conversation, with the exception, perhaps, of Elon Musk. There aren't a lot of outsiders that have the same kind of vision for big science today. That's right. I, I think the last great scientist who masterminded a big science program was probably Jim Watson at the Human Genome uh, uh, Project, which was a three or four billion dollar project. Uh, that was the last big concentrated single big science pro- program we had, and it took somebody like Watson with his, of his stature, a very Lawrencean stature uh, uh, for the modern day, to to have achieved it. Uh, and, and yes, a lot of big science has devolved over to industry, and I think that's something we should be concerned about because industry, when when corporations get involved in big science, they're not investing at this point in basic science. They're investing in applied science, in projects that can advance their own corporate goals. There's nothing wrong with that except that when that's all the science funding that there is, then then it really does um, sort of shortchange the seed corn of science, and that is basic science, which is something that that government traditionally has been the source of. Michael Hiltzik, his book is Big Science, Ernest Lawrence and the Invention that Launched a Military-Industrial Complex. Michael, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, it's my pleasure, and thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.